All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. And welcome back, everybody, to our 29th episode. Happy New Year. We've rolled the calendar over again, and it's now early January 2022. While everyone might have been settled in for a long winter's nap on the night before Christmas, FERC was quite active two days before that, issuing on December 22nd an order that reversed portions of a previous order on reserve pricing in PJM and ordering further delay to PJM's already significantly delayed capacity auction schedule, meaning the next auction for the 2023-24 delivery year that was set to occur on January 25th isn't happening now. The order comes as PJM is in the middle of its quadrennial evaluation of its resource adequacy and reliability analyses and assumptions as it continues to grapple with implementing order 2222 and its implications for finding ways to exert authority over things PJM doesn't have authority over and the industry's overall transition and general upheaval. Additionally, there was a big winter storm in the Mid-Atlantic region just a few days ago that still has power out in some regions. So suffice it to say, there's a lot going on. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, did you make any new resolutions this year? <laughs> yeah, well, Happy New Year, Rory. Yeah, Happy uh, New Year to you, too. Yeah, great to connect and great to uh, spend some time here. And yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. I, I went to, I, I was good. I got up, went to the gym six o'clock this morning and I looked around and that gym was as crowded as I've ever seen it. So it's, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people working on their New Year's resolutions. Yeah, that's for sure. yeah. Uh, as far as resolutions go here on the podcast, we, uh, we're, we're continuing to, to plug along as we always do. Are we not? Yeah, absolutely. We're getting 2022 off to a great start here on the, the GT Power Hour. And we got a phenomenal guest this month. And uh, let me introduce him. And then we're going to get into please. some really fun issues. So please do. Please joining, us, yeah, yeah. joining us this month is uh, FERC Commissioner Mark Christie. Uh, Commissioner Christie took the office, uh, I didn't even realize it, almost a year ago today. So um, Literally, literally a year ago <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah, how about it? Congratulations so, on your anniversary. That's right. That's no, right. Actually, so, yeah, you're actually, uh, first day I was actually visited the FERC office the day before I got sworn in in Richmond. So literally, <laughs> literally a year ago yesterday, I got, I got uh, sworn in. That's great. That's great. So a year on the job and wow, what a year it's been. Um, he's, uh, his, his term expires in, in 2025. So he's going to be a FERC commissioner for some time, but he's been a friend for a long time working, uh, on the Virginia state corporation commission for a whopping 17 years, which is a terrific run as a state regulator. And now he's, uh, serving our country at FERC, and we're really glad to have him on the uh, GT Power Hour. Commissioner Christie, welcome. Thank you. Happy New Year. Glad to be here. And, I, and by the way, when you said the gym was crowded, was it the gym, Glenn, or was it the coffee shop? <laughs> no, it was the gym. It was the gym. I didn't stop at the coffee shop. So I, 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 I did. I had to get back and prepare for this, uh, this episode, so I couldn't, I couldn't stay for coffee. <laughs> hey, so let's give a little outline for today's episode, because while we may take a few detours per our usual, 
the focus is to explore two specific issues, and those are capacity markets and transmission planning and cost allocation. So let's start with capacity markets, but first a caveat. There are several issues that are currently pending before the commission that we can't discuss to avoid any ethical concerns. And as much as we'd like to talk about that Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve surprise, rehearing requests are likely no doubt being crafted right now, and we need to stay away from that as well. We will, however, explore some high-level issues associated with capacity markets and even talk about the MOPR, the minimum offer price rule that you all hear about so often, since that is no longer pending before the commission. And one thing we can talk about from the reserve pricing order is its impact on auction schedules, specifically that such market auctions are being pushed further back in PJM with the order's direction to delay the one plan this month for the 2023-24 delivery year. So to set the stage as we embark on this conversation about capacity markets, we're not sure when the next auction will be or what the rules will look like. Meanwhile, the relevant delivery year for which auction results are usually known three years ahead of time begins a little less than a year and a half from now. Guys, any uh, initial comments from you? As you said, I'm sure that the rehearing requests are already being drafted, so we can't talk about the the uh, ORDC order, um, and that's still pending. In fact, I can't talk. It's my standard caveat, nothing unique to, to this show, but um, I cannot talk about any formal pending matter. Uh, now, the ANOPER, which you're going to bring up, of course, is a general matter, and uh, that's one of, the, one of the differences between state and federal, if you want to get into that later, because um, I know that's one of your questions. But um, so I'm going to be very careful not to talk about any any pending matter. So you're you're right to to raise that. And I'll just reiterate it as a standard uh, standard rule. Yeah. And I would say I mean, I think it's important that we that we mention that caveat, because for our, our listeners, you know, um, who don't know, you know, all the inner workings, sometimes you're kind of listening you're like, well, why aren't you talking about there's like an elephant in the room that you're not talking about. There's there's some reasons why, why we don't do that. And this this is one of them that, you know, some of the things that we can't mm-hmm. get into for ethical reasons. Um, so let's yeah. just let's just start from the top. Capacity markets and PJM commissioner, a good thing, a bad thing or something in between. Well, let me just restate what I've said actually many, many times on the record over the past year. And so not any groundbreaking comments, but, I'll, but it's a good, this is a good forum to, to maybe go into more depth about what I've been saying. And again, uh, I speak as someone who's, as, as Glenn knows, has been involved as a state regulator in PJM, you know, going all the way back to the to the dawn of creation of the uh, R, what was called the RPM capacity market, reliability pricing model, uh, back in the middle of the first decade of the millennium. So I guess that makes me a millennial, but <laughs> I've been around since the beginning as has Glenn, but for some reason, Glenn doesn't look any older and I do. So I don't know how that worked, but, but, uh, but let's, let's look at some history when you talk about capacity markets and Glenn knows this. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, um, I think it was just this past month, I saw an article that Pennsylvania was commemorating the 25th anniversary of, of its yeah. restructuring law. Yeah. Uh, 25 years, and I, th- I guess Pennsylvania passed it in 1995 to go into effect on New Year's 96, and Virginia passed a similar law in 98. Uh, it was actually repealed in, in 2007 when it became apparent what was going to happen when the retail price caps came off. Uh, but that's another story, and we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Mm. But the capacity market was – let's remember the original purpose of the capacity market, and I'm obviously more familiar with PJM than other, other RTOs, but I think they're pretty much the same. The purpose was to provide generating resources with what's been called the, quote, missing money, unquote. And, you know, these resources under restructuring 
were going to come out of rate base. And by coming out of rate base, they were going to lose that revenue stream that is guaranteed in when you're rate based. And so to make sure that we had reliability, and that's why the PJM construct was called the RPM, reliability pricing model. To keep reliability when you're taking generating resources out of a rate base, there has to be this missing money, at, the, at least that was the theory. And so the money was going to come from the capacity market, so they would be available. And the winners in the capacity market construct, remember, the model was going to be that, that they would compete in these capacity markets to get the missing money. And they would compete in with cost-based offers. And so competition was going to be the way to decide who was going to get the missing money and get the revenue stream. Because remember, the capacity market, you're getting paid to be available at a point in the future. You're not getting paid for past performance. You're getting paid to be available in the future. And this was, uh, and, and this was the theory. And, and frankly, in terms of economic theory, I think it was sound. I thought so at the time. Um, now, not everybody in PJM, you know, not all the states uh, dive, had their utilities divest generation. I mean, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland uh, all did, Delaware. Um, other states didn't. Virginia did not. Virginia did not require the utilities to divest. In fact, it wouldn't allow, my commission wouldn't allow it. Um, and um, so Virginia still went in PJM, but it went in as a, as a self-supply state, which was very different. Uh, perspective, obviously, than, than Pennsylvania and New Jersey. But here's the point. So at the beginning of the capacity market back in 2006, and I was one of the original OPSI board members, OPSI being the organization of PJM states. When we had OPSI meetings back then around the time of the RPM uh, 2006, when the capacity market was getting off the ground, all the states pretty much agreed what we wanted. We wanted a competitive market. We wanted generating resources who were bidding into the capacity market to get that revenue stream, that missing money, to have to compete for it. And we wanted the lowest cost and, and compete based on cost, cost-based offers. So everybody understood that was the way this was supposed to work and that consumers would benefit. And consumers have. I saw numbers that in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania went from one of the highest cost states to one of the lowest cost states. Uh, and so it, it clearly benefited Pennsylvania. Um, now, as you know well, Glenn, the fracking revolution had a heck of a lot to do with that because it made gas, frankly, really cheap. And so gas generation basically drove out uh, both coal and nuclear over the last 15 years because gas became so cheap. Because, you know, in 2006, nobody saw what was going to happen in terms of the, of the Marcellus and the Utica uh, gas fields. And I know in Virginia, our gas flow completely reversed. Our gas flow was coming from the Gulf. That's right. And, uh, you know, by, by, by within a few years, our gas flow was coming down from Marcellus. Yep. So the, the fracking revolution had a huge part to play. And that was not tied to the RPM. I mean, we benefited in Virginia and, and we were still rate basing generation and we built a lot of combined cycle, by the way, to take advantage of that. So point being, when you went to an OPSI meeting back in the few years right after 
you know, the capacity market was stood up. Everybody from all the states, whatever, whether you were a self-supply state like Virginia, whether you were depending on the capacity market for your resource adequacy like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, everybody wanted the same thing from the capacity market, which is winners would be based on competition. And and, and that way, consumers would benefit, reliability would still be delivered. And that construct worked very well for probably at least a decade. And of course, again, it, it helped that gas because of Marcellus and Utica and the fracking revolution, it helped that gas, you know, went from $15 to less than $3. So that helped a lot. But nevertheless, it, 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 the construct was set up to take advantage of that plunge in gas costs. And so consumers were big winners. Reliability was maintained and PJM did a great job with it. But here's what's happened. The politics ended up subordinating the economics. And what happens in competitive markets frequently, unfortunately, and this is not unique to PJM, it's really global. Oftentimes, the losers in markets, they hire lobbyists, and the lobbyists go to legislatures asking for subsidies. And that's exactly what happened in PJM. And then you add to that that many states started to choose environmental goals over economic goals. And they passed mandatory uh, renewable portfolio standards uh, or other forms of um, you know, offshore wind mandates. And so what the states were looking for from the capacity market started to change. And PJM capacity market went from what was called economic dispatch to an effort to push it towards environmental dispatch. And that's what the MOPR controversy has been all about, frankly, and, and, and it's been going on for years. And uh, it really is about that. Is, it, is, is the capacity market going to be an economic dispatch model or is it going to be an environmental dispatch? So you've seen these state policies diverge. You see it in the fight over REGI. Now, REGI, which is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, that's not you know a PJM issue, but just to illustrate the political divergence and how contentious these issues have been. You well know in Pennsylvania, Glenn, how contentious that's been, uh, the fight over REGI between the legislature and the governor. Uh, we're going to have the same fight in Virginia now. The new governor wants to pull Virginia out of Reggie. That's not a PJM issue. It's not a FERC issue. Just I just use that to illustrate that the politics of energy production have changed, and they've changed different ways in different states. And, and so when you look at PJM, you got the largest multi-state RTO in the country. You got 13 states and D.C., and you've got a real divergence in PJM now uh, in terms of what, what states want out of the capacity market. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist or have a PhD in political science to know that it's it's very problematic whether a, a very large multi-state RTO can maintain a unified vision of what it wants from the market constructs as these state policies continue to, to diverge. Pennsylvania and Ohio, very vocal in the MOPR process. They obviously have different policies, different visions than New Jersey and Maryland. So answer to your question, capacity markets, good, bad, or indifferent, I think the answer is that the economics of the capacity market, the way it was set up back in 2006, were sound. But the reality of the politics, as you've seen different states diverge in their policies, has just made it, in my opinion, very problematic that you can hold this capacity market construct together. Now, it doesn't mean it'll go away. I think that different states are going to have to decide what they want to do. And if they have a different vision, you know, Virginia, our, both of our utilities have gone FRR. And again, we use a lot of acronyms in this business. And so for people who don't follow this inside baseball, FRR is called Fixed Resource Requirement. And Virginia has always been a self-supply state. And now we've got both utilities taking FRR status, which means they are responsible for uh, meeting their own resource needs. I'm not going to get into the detail on that because it gets very, very complicated. But the point is, it's going to continue to evolve. And I think different states are going to have to decide whether they're policy goals are being met better through you know, a regional capacity market, or are they going to be met better through a state form of resource adequacy? And by the way, you look at the other RTOs, let's take MISO and SPP specifically, 
In both MISO and SPP, most of the states, most, almost all of the states, have never given up their authority over resource adequacy. They're, they're largely vertically integrated states. They don't use capacity markets as the primary source of resource adequacy. So it isn't that there are not other models that include a, re, a capacity market but don't depend on the capacity market for resource adequacy. So anyway, as I said in my statement, and I've actually said publicly before, if nothing new there either, states that have a different vision of what they want out of the capacity market may want to you know, reassess where they are and, and, and whether the policies are meeting their needs. It's a long answer, but it's a, it's a complicated <laughs> subject. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot in there. And that was, that was terrific and a lot to unpack. Let me maybe uh, zero on a couple of points. I mean, and you said this in your, your Fair Rates Act statement in the MOPR proceeding that, you know, you think the ultimate answer to this might be states reacquiring control over resource adequacy. Can you expound on that a little bit? I mean, I mean, I think I think we could all agree that, you know, the, the politics at the state level have made capacity markets very complicated. Problematic was the word you, you used. I think that's a fair word, you know, and, and, and it leaves a lot of people questioning, you know, the future sustainability. And it seems like you might be suggesting that states take on a bigger role in that regard. Is that is that a fair reading of what you're saying? Well, I've said, and, and basically in my Fair Rates Act statement, I was just quoting what I've already said. I quoted myself because right, I wanted I to make, make it clear. <laughs> you I, I, footnoted I yourself, which was pretty cool, yeah. No, I, I footnote myself just and mainly just to say, hey, you know, I'm not making this up. I've, uh, this has been a consistent, um, consistent theme ever since I got here. Um, you know, it, it, first of all, let me emphasize, what an individual state chooses to do in terms of its energy policy, uh, if it wants to have a 100% renewable mandate, if it wants to have no mandate, uh, if it wants to satisfy uh, resource adequacy through a regional capacity market, if it wants to be a, a vertically integrated self-supply state, uh, that is the choice of the state. So I'm not suggesting any state should change. I'm not suggesting any state should pick a policy that I might like. I want to emphasize every state has the absolute authority uh, to choose how it meets resource adequacy and how it, how it delivers the power that uh, its consumers need and how it does it on a reliable basis. I think that's, that's got to be a state prerogative. So I'm not suggesting any state ought to do something different. I am saying that if you're in a state and, you, and you're in a multi-state RTO and you don't like the direction the, the RTO is going in terms of, uh, say, let's say, the capacity market, then you got to ask yourself, as, as state policymakers always do, you know, nothing is permanent. At what point do I say, uh, we can do this better? Uh, we can do this in a way that serves our consumers and our economy better. But that's their choice. That's their mm -hmm. choice. And uh, the point I'm making is, at the state level, and a lot of people like to complain about PJM. A lot of states like to complain about MISO, SPP. I think, you know, it's just natural. Don't complain. If you want to do things differently, then, then take a look at how you're structured. But that's your choice. I want to make that clear. That is the state's choice. As a former state regulator, I'm a passionate believer in respecting the, the authority of states and the rights of states to make these decisions. All right. Yeah, no, that's 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 great stuff. Um, now, you, you've consistently emphasized reliability. That's obviously a big issue for you right. and, and affordability. I mean, and you know, it was interesting. Willie Phillips, uh, uh, Willie Phillips, your new colleague, his congressional uh, his congressional hearing, he emphasized the three legged stool of environmental affordability and reliability. And, you know, you seem to be the one that's consistently, you know, uh, you certainly talk about all three, but, you know, try to focus on reliability and affordability. And if if these capacity markets are not politically sustainable, there needs to be some 
tool in place, one that ensures reliability and, you know, ideally affordability as well. Uh, but we've always said reliability is job one. Any thoughts on, you know, how to create that sustainable uh, reliability mechanism as well as a sustainable political mechanism to achieve it? Mm hmm. Well, you're right. I've, I've emphasized reliability since day one. And I think actually under the Federal Power Act, I think FERC has two priorities. Uh, really, it's one priority uh, with with two elements to it. And, and, and it can be encapsulated in a phrase that I use incessantly. Probably people get tired of hearing it. And that is that that FERC's priority is to deliver is to make sure that consumers have reliable power at the least cost. OK. I don't use affordable because what's affordable to Bill Gates is different than what's affordable right. to the wait the waitress at the Cracker Barrel. So I, I use least cost. Now, least cost obviously is consistent with applicable law, uh, whether it's state law, federal law. You know, you have to follow the law as a regulator, and if the law says you have to 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 you know approve a project or or approve a rate that is actually higher than you know you could get the same amount of electrons, you still have to do it, but but I take up the approach that um, reliable power at the least cost, you know, with the caveat, obviously subject to applicable law. And uh, and I think that's what FERC's job is. And I think that's what state regulators jobs are. Now, it, it, the, the caveat applicable state law means you can work in any public policy you want to work into that in different states if they want to, again, have environmental goals. That can, that's obviously going to factor into that because uh, uh, it's just going to be part of least cost, you know, subject to applicable law. But I think that reliable power is just – it's why we have a power system. I mean, it's not a, um, a luxury. I mean, I mean, reliable power in a modern society is, is absolutely essential. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of power out in Virginia the last couple of days due to the winter storm. Uh, Dominion's doing a good job getting it back. Dominion has a, a good reliability uh, record. And um, uh, I'm a Dominion consumer, and I – my power went out for a while, but it came back on pretty quickly. And I was very appreciative, uh, as cold as it was. But uh, we saw in Texas what happens when power goes out for a week. I mean, it's not only an economic um, uh, disaster, but it's a it, you know it's a social and a and a and a physical health disaster, public health disaster. So reliable power is not just you know something that's nice to have. It's 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 an absolute essential element of modern life and. Uh, we just can't do without it, and we can't risk it. Now, we all know occasionally a transformer is going to blow. That's what happened in our neighborhood. We had a transformer blow, and that's going to happen, and branches are going to fall on lines. Uh, that's going to happen. But we can still have a reliable system with, with the obvious elements of you know the occasional line falling on a line or a transformer blowing, a branch falling on a line, a transformer blowing. That's that's, that's going to happen. What we don't have to have is a complete breakdown for a week like we saw in Texas or in California. We can't have right. that. And uh, so, so reliability is, is, absolute, is absolutely, uh, I've said, job one, and, and I think it is. And, um, but it has to be at least cost. And, again, least cost meaning you know, as long as you're within the, following the law, that's what we ought to be shooting for because every consumer in America has to, buy, has to have electricity. This is, again, it's not a luxury. Um, and and uh, it's not a luxury at all. And so we have to be concerned about – uh, what consumers are paying. And, and when I say consumers, I talk about consumers a lot. I'm not just talking about the residential consumer living on a Social Security check, although we ought to be concerned about about those consumers, obviously. But our whole economy, I mean, many consumers are big industrial consumers. I mean, Pennsylvania is, a, is an industrial state. You've got 
uh, a lot of heavy industry in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in the Midwest, Michigan, my wife's from Michigan, um, that, you know, they're on low margin and they're trying to compete in a global market. And whether they stay open, you know, we talk about onshoring jobs or, or offshoring jobs, industrial jobs in the Midwest. I mean, to a large degree, that's a, that, that is a factor of the, the power cost, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and so we have got to keep those consumer costs under control. Again, not just because we care about the, the, the elderly person on Social Security and I'm getting close to where I'm going to be on it at some point. But of course we do. But it's our job base, especially manufacturing. I mean, manufacturing is dependent upon power costs. There's very little manufacturing that isn't heavily dependent upon power costs. And you know that, Glenn, in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. And, and, and Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, the industrial Midwest. I mean, the, the power costs are are just part of whether or not we keep these jobs here or whether they're going to be offshore to someplace cheaper. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, I, I talk about it all the time, and I'm going to keep talking about it because I think – Reliable power at the least cost is absolutely what we ought to be pursuing. The commission is very focused, as you know, on a transmission these days. The ANOPER advanced notice of proposed rulemaking is out on the street for comment. The FERC NARUC uh-huh. collaborative amongst federal and state regulators is up and running, and there's a lot of talk about a lot of money being spent on transmission. What are your thoughts so far? Yeah, again, I get back to... Um, you know what I think FERC's priority ought to be, and that is reliability at the least cost. Uh, I apply that principle to the RTO markets, uh, to rates, um, and I also apply it to transmission. Uh, same principle, and and you know transmission comes under the Federal Power Act just like uh, the RTOs and the markets do. And so when I look at uh, transmission, I, I bring that same principle to to how I look at transmission planning or regulation from the FERC standpoint. Now, I said when I voted to put the ANOPER out there, uh, and it's a gargantuan document, there's a lot of words in there, and uh, uh, it reminds me of that, that uh, scene in, uh, remember that movie Amadeus, uh, the Oscar-winning movie about Mozart, and uh, Mozart played one of his uh, operas for the Emperor of Austria, and, and when he was finished, the uh, emperor looked at him and said, uh, well, the problem is there's just too many notes, um, and there's, there's a lot of words in that ANOPER. And uh, so what I said when it when I you know I voted to put it out for comment because I'm I'm always generally uh, willing to put practically anything out for comment and give people a chance to to comment on it. I'm generally inclined to do that almost almost anything because there's no harm in that I think, and and you hear good ideas uh, in the comment. But what I said when I voted to put the ANOPER out, I said, look. I said, there's some good ideas in here, because in any document that big, you're going to find anything. I said, there's some good ideas in the ANOPER. I said, there's some potentially good ideas, depending on the details. And of course, in this business, the devil's always in the details. And there's some ideas that are not ready for prime time and never will be. And I think that still is, a, is an accurate uh, reflection of, of what's in there. And, and we're just going to have to wait and see what, you know, what comes next. But in my opinion, transmission, the, the principle that guides transmission um, – regulation from the federal level is, is again, uh, the goal is reliability at the least cost, you know, consistent with applicable law. And that should apply to transmission the same way it applies to uh, to uh, rates, to RTO markets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, 
I mean, you're obviously concerned about cost. Let me ask you about this. Let me ask about cost allocation because cost allocation mm-hmm. is always a tough issue when it comes to transmission. Right. And we, we, we've seen this movie several times before. Um, is there any reason to think that it's going to get any easier? No. Okay. <laughs> cost allocation is, 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 is never fun, never easy. And uh, it is a, uh, we'll see where it goes, but having, again, been involved in state regulation uh, right. for a long time, I, I know, I know how cost allocation in a regional RTO um, uh, is, is never easy. It will not be any easier this time. I can promise you. Yeah, and let me, I mean, let, let me just go to the point on cost because uh, actually Pennsylvania put this in comments it sent to you on the ANOPER mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. 2019 and 2020, Pennsylvanians were paying more for transmission than they were for generation, uh, which is like mm-hmm. the first time that's ever happened in history. And I mean, and just going back to my days, transmission, I think, was maybe 8% yeah. of a consumer's bill. Um, and obviously, it's grown significantly since then. So yeah, I mean, the costs are already, um, I think, something that deserves attention. And if we're talking about right. the build out that we're talking about, it's going to get even more. And these projects aren't getting cheaper or easier, right? Uh, and that's the other thing that's going no, on. No, and, 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 and there's a, a myth, I think, being pushed or a narrative being pushed by various interest groups and politicians that the United States has been neglecting or underinvesting in transmission, that we're not spending any money on transmission and our transmission system's falling down. And, you know, we have a bunch of lines that were built before World War II and we haven't replaced them. And, and it's just a completely false narrative. I saw some numbers the other day from uh, one of the, one of the uh, economic reporters. Uh, and, and, and the data came from actually uh, Energy Information Administration, USEIA, which is a good source. Um, over the last decade, the total rate-based transmission in the United States has more than doubled, and we've had double-digit growth uh, in in rate base uh, transmission rate base uh, over the over the past decade. PJM, in particular, has been the leading uh, RTO in terms of year-over-year growth in 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 the amount of tra- of transmission being rate-based. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, PJM is running about 14% a year over the last decade. Now, I'm not making an argument that any of this was was not necessary. Um, I, I said on, I, I contributed to it. Okay, as a state regulator, I said on scores of uh, certificate proceedings where we were approving, were asked to approve uh, transmission transmission facilities because you know uh, the siting and the CPCN authority is still at the state level. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I sat on scores of those cases, and I voted for most all of them. And I voted for them because the need was proven, and that's the point. If if the need is proven, then they need to be built. So I'm not making the point that about the rate base and how the rate base has gone up substantially in the last decade nationally, and, and in PJM in particular, it's been going up about 14% a year. So you're right, Glenn. The, the the transmission component of people's bills has gone up substantially. Um, and, uh, and I noticed as well in the, in the, in the state of the market report from, from the IMM last fall, that for the first time in the history of PJM, the transmission component was, was, was more than the, the capacity component, um, resource component. You're right. It's it, first time. So point I'm making is 
this narrative being pushed by various interest groups that oh my god you know we have all this transmission system it's falling down it had you know it's 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 pre world war 2 and you know we we've been underinvesting and we got to go out and spend 3 trillion dollars i think that's the princeton university study you know uh, otherwise we're not going to have any you know it's a false narrative okay it is not based on facts the facts show we're investing a lot of money in transmission and again i'm not saying that's not, that 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 money is not needed i i voted for scores of those projects but it is but we are spending a lot of money on transmission the the challenge is to make sure that we're spending money on projects that are needed and that's the key word need okay if a project is needed then it should be built and i voted for some very controversial projects i the, the trail project trail biggest, sure i remember biggest, trail biggest trail to this day trail to this day is the largest regional project in pjm to this mm-hmm. day 180 miles uh pennsylvania west virginia virginia and uh, all three state commissions approved it and i remember very well i remember sitting in high school gyms getting getting hundreds of people you know opposing opposing it yelling at you um thousands of comments opposed to it it went right through some of the most beautiful country in northern virginia what we call the horse country um uh, some of the most <laughs> rich and powerful people in Virginia uh, opposed to it because it went right in their backyard, literally. Um, extremely controversial. But all three states, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, voted for it and, and, and said, we need this. We have to have it. And so we're going we're gonna to approve it. And, and, and it got built. And so the point is, uh, if, a, if, a, if a line is needed, whether it's a regional line like trail, or whether it's it's what you know a local line, um, a maintenance line. Sometimes they're called maintenance lines. When all you're doing is you're doing a wreck and rebuild. You know you're tearing down a line that is 60 years old that was built around World War II, and you're tearing it down and you're re- rebuilding a more modern line. You know those projects are needed too, uh, if, if that's what the record shows. So we need to build what we need in transmission. And and the point I just want to make is number one, just a false narrative that we're not investing in transmission. We're investing an awful lot of money in transmission, and we've been doing it for at least the past decade. And so it's, it's false narrative that we're not investing in transmission. And, and point, second point, we need to invest in the transmission that is needed to serve consumers. And that's the important thing. Let's remember, transmission is to serve consumers. It's not to serve certain preferred developers of generation. Let's always remember that. Right. Can I ask a follow up on that one? Let me, you know, you mentioned that we are, um, you know, it's the necessity of the project, but a project for $100 is great. But if I could get that same project for $70, that's even better. So does cost containment and cost control play into your consideration at all? And, And I guess a corollary to that is, has Order 1000 done what it needs to do? Well, I think Order 1000. There were a lot of there's a lot of people who wanted different things out of Order 1000. So, yeah. say what it needs to do is is a is a sort of a a very open ended question because <laughs> it was sort of a uh, it was like a Rorschach plot that people saw in it what they wanted right, to see. Right. Right. Um, and um, I look at it again from a practical standpoint, and as somebody who was a state regulator at the time, and, and I just look at it from a very practical standpoint. If a project is needed, and by need I mean the transmission de- developer has come into a state commission and proven based on evidence that the line is needed for reliability or, or for a congestion really but first and foremost for reliability if the proof is there then you ought to build it now your question well if you can get it for 70 dollars instead of 100 shouldn't you do that and of course the answer is of course you should 
but that's a that's a matter of proof. Yeah. That's a matter of proof. And and so, uh, as a state regulator, if if the if the, uh, the the developer comes in and says, "Look, we can build this for a hundred dollars," as a regulator, you should ask, "Well, uh, can't you get it cheaper?" Now, there's two ways to do that. You can require the 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 developer, which is usually the uh, load serving entity, usually the 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 utility itself. You can say, "Well, are you going to bid this out? I mean, are you going to?" You know, are you going to do the actual construction in-house? Are you going to bid it out? What's your process for ensuring that the construction cost is going to be as low as you can get it? And so that's one way to do that. And and that was a typical issue in a in a CPCN case uh, in front of us. It's what you know. Are you, what are you going to do to get the construction as cheap as you can? Well, we're going to bid it out. We're going to do an RFP, and we're going to get different construction uh, bids, and we're going to take the lowest one. Okay, that's one way. The other way to get it cheaper is somebody come, is, is, the developer comes in and says, we've got a $100 project. And we say, okay, is there an alternative? Okay, you want to build a 25-mile, uh, 500 kV or 250 kV, and you want to build it, and it's going to cost 100 bucks. Well, obviously, 100 is a number I'm just using for illustrative purposes because $100 is not usually going to cover the interest of one day. But, okay, let's say $100 to keep the number even. So another way you might look at it was, in addition to saying, are you going to bid out the construction, is, well, is there an alternative? An example, you want to build this line, this, 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 this 500 kV line that's going to cost you know, 100 bucks, 100 million. Could you have, have instead built a generator option? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're trying to, uh, you know, would a generator uh, in the same location provide uh, even more or or or, or cheaper uh, relief in terms of reliability or congestion, uh, and so you do that at the state level. I mean, you should be doing it. And so, getting the cost down obviously is a is a priority. And there's different ways to do that. And I think one of the criticisms of the of the RTOs, not just PJM but across the country, I think, is that they don't look at alternatives enough. They don't look at alternatives to it to the big transmission line. Uh, I'm not saying that's a fair criticism. It, it is a criticism. I know that at the state level, because again, I speak from experience. It, it's when you're at the state level and you're and you're uh, sitting on the uh, certificate of public need hearing uh, litigation. That's what you ask. You ask, not only are you getting the construction as cheap as you can, but you also ask, are you looking at alternatives? What's the alternative to this? Uh, and, and we had lines that we that, that actually didn't get turned down, but it got withdrawn because we wanted to see an alternative that involves a wreck and rebuild of an existing line as opposed to building a brand new greenfield line. So that's what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. At the state level, when you when you when you vet these things, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see any tensions, um, or how do you see the tensions between FERC and states playing out as far as siting and and sort of the alternatives in, that you're talking about there? Well, I think states ought to have the, the siting authority. Period. Yeah, and, and and trail is a great example. You know, I used the example of trail. That was an incredibly controversial line, and of course it is. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, it ran through three states. It ran through beautiful countryside it was a green you know it it, it was um it, even actually actually interestingly enough it ran through in, in virginia mostly dominion right away but it was still undeveloped so the, mm-hmm. so the scenery was beautiful um and um it was a it was a, a firestorm of opposition i mean hundreds of people thousands of comments we had like 10 interveners all of whom were opposed to it mm-hmm. but at the end of the day you know all three states all three of us said the record shows it's needed and so we approved it, and it got built. I mean, it was appealed to our Supreme Court, and, and the Supreme Court said, well, look, I, you know, they looked at our process, and they said, well, Virginia State Corporation Commission did everything right. You know, they, they gave people a voice. They gave people a hearing. They gave everybody a chance to come out 
And at the end of the day, they base their decision on nothing but the evidence in the record. And so we were upheld. Okay, and Pennsylvania and West Virginia did the same thing. Suppose one of those states had instead, or, or all three, had turned it down, said this is just not needed. And suppose an employee of FERC or DOE, U.S. Department of Energy, then swoops in and says, well, I have authority under Federal Power Act to order it built despite the fact that, that these three state commissions who did all their due diligence, had all these hearings, heard from thousands of people, they turned it down, but it's really needed, and so we're going to order it to be built. Can you imagine the reaction to that? Hmm. The political reaction to that? First of all, it would be, it would, it would be the end to uh, backstop citing authority because oh immediately the, the senators and the, and the members of Congress from those states would have immediately been running to add an amendment to whatever the next bill on the floor was saying there will be no backstop authority here, not for this one, because the political back, backlash would be horrendous. So I know it's included in, the, in this uh, bill they passed um, a couple months ago, backstop citing authority. Uh, it's there. I'm not going to prejudge any case. Uh, obviously, but uh, speaking generally and speaking as a former state regulator, I mean, if you want to see lines get built, you want state regulators being the ones that approve them, simply for credibility and, and the political reality of it. Okay, so finish this sentence. In 10 years, this transmission exercise with Nehruk will be a success if... We are building the transmission that we need to ensure reliability at the least cost. It's that simple. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, Commissioner, now for the speed round. Biggest difference between being a state and a federal regulator? Well, the biggest difference, obviously, the jurisdiction and the cases are at, at the federal level are, are national in scope, and at the state level, they're they're statewide in scope. But a lot of the work is uh, is is very is very similar. Um, it, you know, as far as the, I found so much of it. You know, obviously, I've been a, a utility regulator for 17 years, so so a lot of this is obviously extremely familiar. Mm-hmm. What do you miss most about being a state regulator? Well, you know, there is no generic state regulator because each state commission is different, and, and each state commission is unique, and that's one thing I. You know, one of the perspectives that I bring. Uh, but being specific, you know, see, I come from Virginia, and the Virginia State Corporation Commission is just a very special place for a lot of reasons. It's uh, the Virginia SCC is is most of all it's independent of the both the executive branch and the legislative branch in Virginia. Uh, it, it's a unique uh, arrangement uh, of all the states, and it's and the independence is uh, incredibly valuable. You, you essentially you basically are left alone to do your job there. There's no political uh, influence in Virginia, and I want to say in 17 years, never was there political interference uh, from a Virginia politician uh, in, in, our, in doing our job. And so that's what made the Virginia SEC, you know, just a really special place. So when you say what's the difference, you know, I, 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 of course, I'm going to relate it to my experience in Virginia, which was which was just, a, you know, the Virginia SEC is just a, a great place. And so uh, so uh, that's that's the big difference for me. But again, different states are different constructs. As Glenn well knows, Pennsylvania is very different in, in the way you appoint commissioners. And so every state's different. But that's the point and the perspective I bring is that I'm never going to know as much about other states as I know about Virginia. And, and, and I didn't know and I didn't become omniscient because I came to FERC. And I can tell you, nobody else here is omniscient either. Uh, we do not know as much about the states as the states know about their own challenges and their own problems and their own uh, uh, energy situations. And that's why I am always reluctant to intrude and insert FERC authority in place of what state commissioners are, are doing, because they know it better. They know their yeah. states better than I will ever know or anybody else here at FERC will ever know. So you've been there a year. What have you liked the most about transitioning to uh, being a federal regulator? 
know, the nicest thing about being a federal regulator is that because I'm not the chairman, I don't have to spend half my time on administrative matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one downside in Virginia, I mean, is a wonderful Virginia SEC is a wonderful place, but the, the, as a as a commissioner or a judge uh, in Virginia, there's three of us, and we're all three the co-chief uh, administrative officers. And so there were literally days when all we did was administrative stuff, IT contracts, HR problems, procurement issues. I mean, there were days that's all we did uh, was was administrative stuff. And um, the, the, the nicest part about being at FERC is I don't have to do that because at, at FERC, the chair handles all that. If you could change one thing about the FPA, what would it be? I would clarify much more definitively, I think, the delineation between federal and state authority. I think uh, that's an issue that comes up a lot. Uh, you know, it, it's built into the FPA, of course, is that is that the feds regulate wholesale and the states regulate retail. I mean, that's sort of built into it. But I think there's been a lot of blurring of that line over the last couple decades. And I'd like to clarify, but I'm not rewriting it right now. So but that's that's what I would do is delineate that delineate more clearly the the, the uh, dividing line between federal and state authority. Is it possible to do that in today's world, given the state of the industry? Well, you have to because you've got federal regulators and state regulators, and you've got to delineate, yeah. you know, who has what Fair authority. Enough. So you have to do it. You have to do it. I mean, whether you, yes, it's, you know, it's difficult, but I mean, you still got to do it because you've got these two levels of authority. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay, you have several dissents, some of which are strongly worded, and most of which focus on concerns related to reliability and affordability. Are those your two driving policy considerations? Well, as I said, yeah, many times, FERC's priorities are reliability at the least cost. Again, I don't use affordability because right. what's affordable to Jeff Bezos is not what's affordable to, you know, the waitress at the Cracker Barrel. So I look at least cost. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, I should have said least cost. Okay. Now some questions that are very close to my heart. What was the greatest moment in Pittsburgh Pirates baseball history? Yeah, that is so easy. Uh, Billy Mazeroski's walk-off bottom of the ninth inning <laughs> against the Yankees, um, and uh, which which also, by the way, happens to be the single greatest play in the history of baseball, in wow. my humble opinion. And, wow. and uh, I want to I want to I want to thank the Yankees for making it possible. Um, there we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was uh, I was born in the Pittsburgh area, and so I grew up a Pirates fan, and have been long suffering ever since. The Mazarowski days were before my time, so unfortunately, I didn't really get to uh, appreciate. We had, all we had uh, I don't know if you you sound like you were born after seventy one and seventy nine, but I, I remember seventy one and seventy nine very well, uh, and those was, were two. I yeah, was eighty two. Those were two great World Series wins. Yeah, okay, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I just missed all of them. Yeah. Best I've had, uh, 91 was yeah. a pretty good year, uh, and, um, you know, some of the more recent stuff um, with McCutcheon yeah. have been good years. Uh, but let well, me you had to live through oh, go ahead. Francisco Cabrera and that, that hit, uh, <laughs> and, and Sid Bream, of, you know, and, and, and you talk about dropping the F-bomb, yeah. uh, Sid Bream, you know, who I could outrun. Uh, actually scoring the winning <laughs> run, but uh, but I, I um, remember those 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 brave playoffs very well oh, and with brave. incredible oh with incredible pain. I, those were great pirate too. teams, great pirate teams. They really were. They really were. Bobby uh, Bonilla, Barry Bonds, yeah. Doug yeah. Drabeck. Yeah. I mean, Andy yeah. Van Slyke. I mean, those were great pirate teams. Yeah, and beast. the fact they didn't win a World Series was tragic. Uh, uh, segue then: Is there a chance the Pirates can win a series again? Not under the current revenue sharing arrangements in the in Major League Baseball. Uh, it's, it's a small market. And, of course, people, when I bring this up with other you know fans, they say, wait a minute, guys, the Steelers do fine. Look, the Steelers do fine because 
first of all, they have great ownership, and they always have with the Rooney. I was going to say. Um, that's but where it starts. the NFL has a different revenue sharing arrangement. And so the Steelers compete and win and occasionally win Super Bowls um, because you've got a different revenue sharing arrangement, which is a lot more fair to the small markets like Pittsburgh. But, and, and, of course, you've got the great ownership team and the Roonies. And that's don't underestimate that. Yeah, I think the leader, uh, ownership and a commitment to winning is, is something important. And there is a long, uh, there's a long litany of uh, of writing on why the current pirates pirates ownership does not appear to be committed to winning. So we'll move on. Give us a book, show, movie, media, or, or well, I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying I'm not criticizing the pirate ownership. I think that the challenge. I'm I'm, I'm praising the Steeler ownership, which has been sure. in place for decades. Sure. Um, but the, but the problem with the pirates, I mean, you're you're in a small market and you're in a baseball revenue sharing situation where small markets just don't get the revenue. Yeah. No, I, that 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 you're you're right about all of that. That's that's fair. Um, okay. Give us a book, movie, show, or other media recommendation. Okay. I'll give you all of the above. Okay. Um, I, I read a lot of history. My my two most recent history books that I finished that, that came out recently, I, I really recommend. One is a book called The Fall of Robespierre by uh, British wow. historian Colin Jones. And, and Robespierre is a, a key figure in the French Revolution. Sure. Uh, and actually, it's not just historical. When you read the book, you have a lot of parallels to today, um, which I, can't, I won't go into here. It'd take a long time. And then another one, which is a great book, I thought one of the best books on World War II I've ever read, and I've read a bunch of them, a book called Stalin's War by a historian named Sean McMeekin, uh, an ec- excellent uh, book and, and a fascinating perspective of World War II from Stalin's perspective hmm. uh, and really well written. And I recommend both of those. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as far as older books, uh, history books, I'm, uh, there's a book called Life and Fate by a, a Russian writer called Vasily Grossman, which was written, oh, several decades ago, but it, it, it's worth reading. Um, it's a it's a timeless book. I mean, it really is. It's about this on the surface, it's about the siege of Stalingrad during World War II, but it really is about much more than that. So, Life and Fate is just a, I think one, I think, I think literally the, the best book written in the 20th century. Huh. And then, of course, the the entire Cairo series on Lyndon Johnson is fascinating. I've read every every one of them, and I highly recommend them. And we're all hoping Robert Cairo gets the fifth volume finished. And so we're we're, we're hoping and praying that Robert, you finish that that series because, you know, if you've read the first four volumes, you want you want to read the last one. He's working on it now. Um, Best TV shows of all time, three best in my opinion, were Breaking Bad, okay. Sopranos, sure. and Mad Men okay. uh, uh, right. of, of all time. Uh, more recently, there's a great um, show on uh, Netflix uh, called Jiri Haji, G-I-R-I-H-A-G-I, which is Japanese. It's a Japanese uh, co-production with, uh, with – it's a Japanese-British co-production. One of the great things about these streaming services like Netflix and Amazon, you get to watch a lot of TV from around the world and you're not yeah. limited to American networks. So Jerry Haji is great. And then I loved uh, line of duty, which is a police show on the BBC, which you get through Amazon. Hmm. Um, and of course my favorite movie of all time, first and foremost and always is Casablanca. Oh, uh, okay. okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a nice mix of, uh, of uh, things that people have heard of and probably some things that they haven't heard of yet. So uh, a little mm-hmm. bit of, we're going to have like a book club or a media club on the, on the website when, oh, yeah. uh, with all the recommendations. So. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out the common thread between Robespierre, Tony Soprano, and Humphrey Bogart and struggling. Anti-heroes. So. More than you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. More than you think. And Don Draper. More than you think. Yeah. Don Draper. Yeah. And Willie Stargell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't bring Willie in, but yeah. uh, Walter <laughs> White. Walter well, Walter White from Breaking Bad is a is a is a one of the great antiheroes of all time. Yeah, antiheroes. Yeah. I was gonna say that's that uh that that's where it comes down to. Okay. Uh is there anyone you consider a role model in the energy sector? Yeah, there's a former SEC judge who who just passed away uh, uh, last month. His name was Preston Shannon. I did a tweet about him. Uh, we named our largest courtroom after him before I left the Virginia Commission. And uh, he served almost a quarter century, uh, really before my time, but I got to know him uh, after I got to the Virginia SEC because uh, some of the retired judges would come in in the summertime. And uh, I, I got to know him. And Preston Shannon was a, a legend in Virginia utility regulation. Uh, he was a tower of integrity dedicated to the public interest. And, uh, and he knew as a utility regulator, you have to, you're always balancing the interests of consumers and investors. And you have to do that because you have to make sure that you know, the investors have to have a return to invest in the assets that are going to serve consumers. But it's got to be a fair return. And so he knew you had to balance the interest of, of, of both. So Preston Shannon, I would say, was the role model. Have you given up your temporary office behind a supermarket in Richmond? Uh, no, and actually it's behind a little wine and grocery store. And oh. uh, uh, yes, yes, I'm still there. I'm sitting there right now. And I actually just oh. uh, renewed the lease for, for calendar 2022. Oh, nice. um, so it's not, it's not, I wouldn't call it temporary. It'll be my office. <laughs> It'll be okay. the FERC Annex Richmond uh, as long as I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the FERC Annex, I like that. It's funny. Um, okay, moving on. It's time for the section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to people whom we think need it. You have two minutes, Commissioner, to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Who are you going with, and what are you saying? All right, the Steelers need to draft that quarterback out of pit. Kenny Pickett. Yeah. Oh, like wow. Like oh, really? Man. Big Ben, big ben Roethlisberger. I mean, and, and by the way, uh, congratulations. Thank you for... Thanks for the memories to Big Ben. Uh, he's been great, uh, but uh, everybody's time, everybody's time passes, and uh, it's time for a new a new quarterback. And I know Big Ben's retiring, and uh, I've been very impressed with Kenny Pickett, the pick quarterback. I think that'd be a great uh, draft choice for the Steelers if they can get to him. It may be too late, uh, but anyway, that's my advice to the Steelers: get Kenny Pickett from Pitt. Yeah, they need Plus to lose and miss the be playoffs. Great. Yeah, they need to lose and miss the playoffs in order to get a higher pick. I have a feeling. So, but I, yeah, I can't. I can't do anything about that. But if right. if if the choice if the choice is there, I know they need a, they need a quarterback. They know they need a quarterback. So, yep, get Kenny like Pickett or trade or trade for Trevor Lawrence, one or the other. And yeah. I know. Well, as a as a long suffering Washington fan myself, uh, I can tell you, yeah, having a quarterback is pretty important. Uh, you, can mm-hmm. have the rest of, you can have the rest of the team going, but it doesn't matter if they can't get the ball to the right guys. Uh, okay, Glenn, what do you, what's your advice this month? Yeah, and it was prompted. My advice is to Pennsylvanians to go out and, and shop for electricity, and, and here's why. It was prompted yesterday by a letter I got in the mail, and it was really intriguing. Um, you know, we get solicitations fairly regularly for, uh, for a new retail supplier, as I'm sure most Pennsylvanians do, but this one caught my eye. It was a flat rate, all you can eat, basically, electricity service. So for $160 a month, this company was willing to basically take care of all your power generation needs. And $160 a month may sound like a lot. It probably is by most standards in terms of usage. But think about it if you have one or two electric cars, um, a larger home, what have you. Um, it was intriguing to me. These offerings might have been around in Texas uh, for some time, but it was the first time I actually saw sort of a, 
an option like that where for one you know, monthly charge, you could basically have all the electricity you want. So um, just another reminder, go out, shop, look for your best deals. Uh, but one like that, depending on your situation, might be something that's of interest. So that's my two minutes of advice this month. Hey, that's that's good. For my two minutes, I'd like to speak with a relatively new Amazon CEO, Andy Jazzy. We almost got into this a couple of months ago, and then I, I we didn't. Uh, now, I, I don't know much about Amazon other than its delivery guarantees haven't been worth the computer code they're written with recently. Uh, I don't own any of its stock or know anyone that works there, but I do know that they are serious about their commitment to powering their operations with 100% renewable energy by 2025 because they have been extremely active in PA in PJM's ongoing work to reform its generator interconnection process, which has been a, uh, uh, which has had a lot of focus from the renewable developer uh, uh, contingent out there. Uh, like it went from hearing, from never hearing from an Amazon representative at PJM meetings to now being able to recognize their voices. On one hand, good for them. Getting involved and helping to create the world they want to live in is a very admirable. But as we always say on this show, the devil is in the details and the way in which they are going about it could stand some of their own uh, vaunted process improvement. Basically, they've walked into the room, said this isn't acceptable, and generally seem to presume that PJM exists to fulfill their interests. But as anyone who sat through PJM stakeholder process education sessions knows, the process is intentionally set up to foster natural tension between opposing interests identify areas of commonality and dispute, and develop consensus to move forward. I'd challenge Jazzy and any of his like-minded CEO contemporaries to really lean into that process and commit to long-term engagement at PJM and other RTOs by understanding how it all works and giving as much as you hope to get. What the industry needs right now is not ever more entities clamoring to hammer their interests through to subdue the wilderness, as it were, but instead thoughtfully study the ecosystem and figure out how to support its growth and vibrancy, raise all boats and, and all of that. The ongoing industry revolution and transition shouldn't simply be seen as an opportunity for new winners and losers, but a chance to go back and do it all better. Okay. Well, it's been another fine hour, more or less. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Any final thoughts, Commissioner Christie or Glenn? I don't have final thoughts. That's a scary term when you think about it. Uh, and uh, I hope it's a long time before I have final thoughts. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, yeah, thank, thank you, Commissioner, for being with us. A wonderful conversation, as always. I mean, there's, there's no better person to find a bar stool with and talk energy and Pittsburgh sports than, than, than Mark Christie. And it's always a pleasure to spend time with him. So thanks for joining us. Enjoyed it. Anytime. Thanks. Talk Pittsburgh sports all the time. <laughs> Black and yellow. Okay. Thank you again, Commissioner Christie, for taking the time. And of course, to our audience for listening. Until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.